You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. guys, welcome back to Season 4 of Ohio v. The World. Today it's Episode 6, Ohio versus War Crimes. This is an episode that we had planned to do later in the season, but thanks to Netflix and their new documentary series, The Devil Next Door, which is just exactly about what we're talking about today, Cleveland's John Demjanjuk, uh, we decided to move this episode up. The Netflix series Devil Next Door just came out last week. Our guest today, Lawrence Douglas, author... Uh, of the book Right, Wrong Man, about the Demyanyuk case, and professor at Amherst College in Massachusetts. He's in the Netflix uh, documentary, and he joined us in this episode to talk about this complicated story. And it's complicated in its twists, its turns, uh, and it's complicated due to the subject matter. You know, the episode is called Ohio vs. War Crimes. It's not Ohio vs. Sunshine and Lollipops. And today, we're going to be talking about the Holocaust. We're going to be talking about Nazi war crimes. And was Cleveland's John Demjanjuk, this elderly man living in suburban Cleveland, where he's an auto worker at Ford, was he one of the most notorious Nazi death camp guards? That's what he's accused of being. We're going to be talking about the Holocaust and 6 million European Jews that were murdered in state-sponsored genocide. Probably the worst thing that ever happened, if not in the 20th century, then all time in human existence, at least in civilized human existence. We're going to ask the tough questions about what is justice. We're going to talk about John Demjanjuk, a man who would be the first American to be stripped of his citizenship twice. Pretty incredible stat. We've done as much research as we can. He's the only one that we've been able to find. Again, our guest is Lawrence Douglas. Uh, you got to get his book, The Right, Wrong Man. He's all over that Netflix documentary, Devil Next Door. He was great to sit down with us. Uh, and again, a, a professor Amherst College, and he was at John Demjanjuk's last trial in Germany. He covered it for Harper's Magazine and later turned that into his his incredible book, Right, Wrong Man. Demjanjuk and his family lived in Seven Hills, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, uh, south near Parma. And our beer for the episode today comes from just down the road in Middleburg Heights, Fathead Brewery, uh, one of the great breweries, and we're drinking their renowned IPA Headhunter won multiple awards. You can get it anywhere. It's one of their year rounds. I mean, a two-time grand champion at the National IPA Challenge, silver award, you know, winner at the World Beer Cup in 2014, 7.5%. If you haven't had Fethead, one of our best breweries, again, ranks always in the top uh, nationally among beers. And this is their kind of their flagship IPA, West Coast style. Uh, You can check out their brewery. They got a restaurant, beer hall, in Middleburg Heights, you can also find they got one in Pittsburgh, uh, North Olmsted, Canton. They have a brew pub. Uh, you can go to fatheads.com uh, for more information. Uh, and again, today we're drinking their Headhunter. They even had a brewery and brew pub out in Portland, Oregon. It closed last year, but uh, one that I had been to with Miss Ohio View the World. One of Ohio's finest beers uh, just down the street from the home of the Demjanjuk. Today we're going to be talking about John Demjanjuk. Was he a murderous Nazi war criminal? Uh, a, a guard at, at you know one of the deadliest Nazi camps, Treblinka. Uh, was he an involuntary prisoner of war? You know, a participant in genocide, an unwilling participant. Uh, is there such a thing as an unwilling participant? 
you, you can definitely ask that question. We'll talk about the voluntariness uh, of his and others like him, their service. Uh, or was he nothing at all? Or was he a guard at a different death camp? You know, we'll look at what is justice that was served to not just Demyanyuk, uh, but some of the other Nazi hierarchy following the war. And Americans' policies of, of letting in hundreds, if not thousands, of Nazis after the war and the years following it. And we'll look at Demyanyuk's trial. He had a couple of them. Um, and we'll look at, you know, what was probably the last big Nazi war crime trial, the trial of Cleveland's own John Demyanyuk. So buckle in. Again, you need to go watch Netflix's new documentary, The Devil Next Door. So good. Five parts, about 40, 45 minutes an episode. It's just an excellent uh, documentary, a Netflix original that a lot of people are talking about. So without further ado, we're going to get right into the crazy case of John Demyanyuk. It's episode six, Ohio versus War Crimes. John Damianyuk, the subject of today's episode, born Ivan Damianyuk, was born in 1920 in the Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union, drafted into the Red Army, uh, like so many uh, Russians and, and people in the Russian republics. He's captured and he's imprisoned by the Nazis. He survives the war. Uh, these are the things that we know. He's captured in 1942. Uh, he's a POW. And eventually, in the early 1950s, he moves to the United States. He's a displaced person. He works with the American Army in the occupation area in Germany. Ultimately, he moves to Cleveland, Ohio, where he's an auto worker at Ford, uh, the big giant plant that's down there by Parma. And John, his wife, his kids, he's kind of living this American immigrant dream on Meadow Lane Road in the middle-class suburb of Seven Hills, Ohio. We talked to our guest, Lawrence Douglas, the author uh, of Right, Wrong Man, a great book about Demyanyuk and his uh, legal troubles and about the Holocaust. We talked to Lawrence just about his life in Seven Hills. He came to the United States in 1952. He became a naturalized citizen in 58. And, uh, you know, he's kind of living this sort of middle-class um, American dream. Uh, he is a machinist uh, for Ford. Uh, he's a UAW um, you know, union uh, worker. And this, of course, is a time when UAW jobs really permit uh, blue-collar workers to have a kind of nice transition into a middle-class uh, lifestyle. Nice suburban house uh, with this nice lawn and a little garden in the back. So, yeah, it's kind of a nice um, middle-class American life. Following the war, Ivan Demyanyuk is one of about 60 million Europeans that are displaced. He lives in Germany. He works for the United States. Uh, he's driving a truck uh, in these displaced person camps that house hundreds of thousands, millions of Europeans that were displaced by the war. We talked with, with our guest, Lawrence Douglas, just about displaced person and the life that Ivan was living following 1945. As you said, the, his experience as being a displaced person is not atypical in Europe. I mean, there were massive population dislocations in Europe as a result of the war. There are a couple of million uh, displaced persons, and uh, he basically bounces around some DP camps, uh, displaced person camps in uh, Germany. And uh, some of these camps are run by the American military, truck driver for them. Uh, during this time, he's trying to, he's basically filling out visa applications to get to the United States, like many, many others are trying to do. And uh, finally, he succeeds in 52. He's able to come with his wife and then first child. 
And uh, when he does become a naturalized U.S. citizen, so Demyanik is born Ivan. He's originally from the Ukraine. And the very day that he becomes a U.S. citizen, um, he kind of does the uh, great American thing where he officially changes his name from Ivan to John. John Demyanik's war story, uh, like so many other poor former Soviets, he's drafted into the Red Army. Uh, the Russians obviously took just the brunt of the losses in in the East fighting off the, the Nazis. Um, but not much is known about his war experience. Like we said, he's captured and, and he becomes a POW in 1942. Um, and when I say not much is known about his war experience, I mean prior to his capture. It was approximately 5.7 million Russians became POWs. That's an incredibly large number. And you're looking at 400,000 war dead for the Americans. You're looking at 6 million almost POWs. More than half of those died in Nazi custody. 3.5 million Russian POWs died in in concentration camps and in prisons. Three and a half million of those uh, less than six million didn't make it. We talk uh, with our guest about John's POW story in World War II. So this is where things get uh, a little bit uh, complicated in the story. So recall uh, Demyanik, he's a Ukrainian. Uh, Ukraine is part of the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, the Germans invade the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941. And uh, he's drafted into the Soviet Red Army. And uh, he serves in the Soviet Red Army. He's taken as a prisoner of war in the spring of 1942. And basically the story that he tells for the rest of his life is that he remains a uh, prisoner of war of the Germans from 1942 basically until uh, the war ends. And uh, so that basically is the story that he tells that from 1942 until the conclusion of the war, he remains a prisoner of war of the Germans. John Demyanyuk is working at the Ford engine plant. It's in Brook Park, Ohio, near Parma. Still there. Uh, he's there for some 20 years. He's a machinist. His kids are grown up, and it's the mid-1970s. And that's when things start to get crazy. He's living this quiet life. Uh, he's going to the Ukrainian church. Um, and, you know, it seems to be a good member of the community. When a pro-communist newspaper in Ukraine... In 1975, it posts a list of Nazi war criminals from Ukraine that are living in the United States. Lawrence, you know, our guest, answers the question, you know, why is a communist newspaper giving info to the U.S. government like this? They send it to the State Department. But it starts a serious investigation at the Justice Department and INS. They, they go headlong into this Ford machinist uh, who's just living in, in suburban Cleveland in his late 50s. The feds are investigating you. It's unlikely that it's just going to go away. And it doesn't for John Demyanyuk. We talked with Lawrence just about that first inkling that there's something in Demyanyuk's past, something linking him to Nazi war crimes. Even before the lineup, uh, American officials, basically in the Immigration and Naturalization Service, these investigators who are investigating people who came into the United States under false pretenses, you know, people who may have been Nazi collaborators, uh, they're doing investigations and they get some information passed on to them. Uh, actually by a, a communist. And you might ask, why on earth would a, a Ukrainian communist pass information on to Americans suggesting that Demyanyuk had served as a uh, death camp guard? And I think the reason is the uh, at the time, the Soviets were trying to kind of drive a wedge between American Ukrainians, who tended to be very uh, fierce Ukrainian nationalists, 
and American Jews. They were trying to drive a wedge between those two communities, and they thought the way they could do it is by saying, oh, look, there's a former Nazi uh, Ukrainian, uh, Nazi uh, collaborator, Ukrainian living in your midst. Charges were filed today against retired Seven Hills auto worker John Demyanyuk, the 66-year-old Ukrainian native, is accused of being a Nazi death camp guard named Ivan the Terrible. The death camp guard who played a major role in the torture and gas chamber murders of nearly one million Jews during World War II. The federal government begins deportation proceedings with Cleveland's John Demyanyuk, saying he lied on his, on his applications for citizenship uh, and something much darker, something that maybe that he was involved as a Nazi death camp guard at an extermination camp known as Treblinka. How does that come up? This investigation, uh, it's passed over to the Israelis, and there's pictures and binders. There's these, they're showing some of these survivors in a completely separate investigation that the Israelis are doing about another person who was at Treblinka, another American. There's a big picture of Demyanyuk and a few of the binders you know, it's possible guards, but it's not something that they're really looking into. Um, but a number of survivors start freaking out. There's so few survivors from camps, extermination camps like Treblinka and Sobibor that were in Poland. Uh, but they're pointing at him. They're saying, this guy right here, Demyanyuk, uh, he was not just a guard at Treblinka. It's this picture they have from his original ID card, from his Trudniki card, which we're talking about. They're saying he wasn't just an, a guard. He was a guard named Ivan the Terrible, the worst of the worst Nazi death camp guards. Remember, his first name originally was not John Demyanyuk, it was Ivan. He changed it, like uh, Lawrence said, when he moved to America. But it's these pictures and these lineups. These survivors, and I'm talking 10, 11 of them, start pointing and saying, this guy was Ivan the Terrible. And, uh, and then, again, don't want to go into too much detail, but it is a kind of incredible backstory. Um, the Americans, once they get this information, they're not really good at doing these kind of investigations. Yeah. Who's good at doing these kind of investigations? Well, it's the Israelis. So they turn to the Israelis, and the Israelis say, sure, we're going to help the American investigators. They uh, turn to a bunch of Sobibor survivors. Remember, the Americans believe that he might have been a, um, a guard at the Sobibor camp. That's what this information that's passed on to them suggests. So the Israelis do this lineup. Uh, of Sobibor survivors, and they just happen to have a few Treblinka survivors there as well, completely coincidentally. And the Sobibor survivors, they don't identify Demyanyuk, but the Treblinka survivors do. And they say, oh, we recognize this guy, and not only is he was he a death camp guard, but he was a particularly notorious one. We called him Ivan Grozny, or Ivan the Terrible, because he was legendarily sadistic and cruel as a death camp guard at Treblinka. It was in this grim hell that the Nazis piled up bodies of their victims like common cordwood sprinkling lime between the layers to assist decomposition. Which has changed the name of Germany to infamy. And not all their tears can erase one letter for all time. Of the quarter of the prison population left alive when rescued by the Americans, 
thousands were beyond human aid. Easy death was the most that life could offer them. Slave laborers worked on the V-2 bomb, serial numbers tattooed on their stomachs. Six furnaces, each holding three bodies, were used in cremating the dead and often the living. Don't turn away, look, burned alive. Horror unbelievable, yet true. The vile inhuman beasts took pride in their concentration camp. Here, a mere handful were found alive while the Americans overran the area. War is not a pretty thing at best, but no words can express the world's disgust at Germany's organized carnage. The Holocaust is the most tragic event in the 20th century, maybe ever. The state-sponsored systematic extermination of an entire ethnic group. It's the dictionary definition of genocide. The most important aspect of doing a podcast on the Holocaust is simply just to add just another historical documentation of the Jewish Holocaust. This happened, that it can't happen again. You know, I encourage you to go and attend the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Miss Ohio View the World and I did. And like they say in the newsreel, like, don't turn away. Look, we have to talk about this. We must, we must remember because it was just that horrible. And it's not that long ago. We're talking, you know, what was this, 80 years ago? Not even. And we asked Lawrence Douglas, our guest, about, you know, what were the differences in some of these camps in Poland that were known as extermination camps, camps like... Sobibor, camps like Treblinka, where you know, John Demjanjuk was alleged to have been. How are they different from some of those more well-known camps, uh, the concentration camps like Auschwitz and Dachau? Well, I think in, in kind of the collective imagination, when you're really talking about the paradigmatic uh, concentration camp, I think we all think of it as Auschwitz. Now, Auschwitz was in part a death camp, and it was in part a slave labor camp. Uh, so I think about... Um, little over a million, about 1.1 million people were sent to Auschwitz. And of those 1.1 were sent to Auschwitz, 100,000 survived. Now, if you think about Auschwitz as a disease, that's a pretty significant death rate. That's a death rate of over 90%. That's a pretty lethal place. But compare Auschwitz to these pure death camps like uh, Treblinka or Sobobor, this other camp named Beltsesh. They, they weren't a death camp. They weren't uh, uh, slave labor camps at all. They were basically pure death camps. And about 1.5 to about 1.7 million almost exclusively Jews were sent to those camps. And of that 1.5 to 1.7 million Jews sent to those camps, 125 survived. 125, period, on planet Earth. I mean, that kind of underscores the difference. And those numbers of, of deaths are just astounding that Lawrence talked about just, just make your you know, stomach turn. But I was talking with some friends about this episode, uh, and they were asking, you know, a couple of them asked an important question, like, well, does this guy have a choice? He's a, he's a POW, and you talk about the Russian POW experiences. Uh, for much more than half of those people, that was a death sentence, a horrible death, a slow, terrible concentration camp death. And they asked, you know, wasn't he basically forced to work for the Nazis? You know, is that is that, you know, even... A thing, this idea of voluntariness, it would come up at trial. But there's some holes in this idea that even if, you know, Demianuk's saying he wasn't a guard, but if he was, uh, this idea of of voluntariness, we explore that with with Lawrence. Yes, in fact, in in many ways, was the most interesting question to arise uh, in the trial, this whole question of voluntariness. Um, You know, anyone who has studied uh, the Second World War knows that... uh, Millions, about 3.5 million 
Soviet prisoners of war died in German POW camps. So a German POW, being a POW of the Germans was not a good position to be in. That said, the position of Russians versus Ukrainians was really quite different. If you were Russian, you were basically doomed. If you're Ukrainian, your chances of survival were much, much higher. And that's because basically what the SS did is they combed through these uh, prisoners, uh, uh, these POW camps, and they basically looked for Ukrainians who were willing to serve as uh, basically auxiliaries of the SS, to go to the special training camp to serve as auxiliaries for the SS. And um, these people were basically selected by the SS, but was that entirely a voluntary um, process? Well, I mean, given the choice between rotting in a POW camp and working for the SS, well, you can understand why there might be powerful incentives for someone to decide to collaborate with the mm -hmm. SS. Uh, also, what's important to bear in mind is it's not clear that uh, at the time that, let's say, Demyanyuk agreed to train with the SS, that he knew what he was being trained for, uh, that he knew he was being trained for uh, basically working as a guard in a death camp. And so it does raise these very kind of interesting questions about you know, whether the service was voluntary. As we said earlier in the late 70s, early 80s, the United States pursues John Demyanyuk on an immigration violation. He's subject to deportation. Although U.S. law, they couldn't prosecute him for his alleged you know, war activities, they weren't powerless against John Demyanyuk. We ask our guests just about what the U.S. federal government could do uh, to force out John Demyanyuk since they couldn't file criminal charges, we assume. Right. So the whole question of um, Nazi collaborators in the United States kind of raises these interesting legal questions. So these crimes are extraterritorial, which is a fancy legal way of saying that they took place in Europe. The victims were not American citizens. The perpetrators weren't American citizens. And so the idea was that no American court had jurisdiction to bring criminal charges against crimes that took place uh, abroad. So were American prosecutors powerless? And uh, as, the, as you suggested, the answer was no, because one thing they could do is they could bring, bring these kind of civil immigration charges against uh, collaborators, uh, basically arguing that they had entered the United States in, under false pretenses, namely that they had um, lied on their visa and immigration forms. And that's basically what they did. And what they could then do is they could denaturalize uh, these persons, namely strip them of their citizenship and then deport them to a country which arguably could bring criminal charges against them. Following World War II, there was some justice. It's important to understand that the Americans let in hundreds, if not thousands, of former Nazis, some really bad dudes. Some of them were let in on purpose, you know, our government to help them things with the military and, uh, you know, NASA building rockets, men like Warner von Braun. Uh, who built the V-2, the missile that was fired, you know, on London and other cities. Uh, he's the one who built the rocket that put us to the moon. Some were let in just by lax immigration standards. But we look at the history of, of justice and Nazi war crimes, you got to start with the all-important Nuremberg trials. Following the war, there's a multinational court, Americans, French, Russians, and British, uh, that convict uh, a lot of the surviving Nazi leadership. And most importantly, they put on the record 
you know, for the entire world, this indisputable evidence, the truth about the Holocaust, the depth of these Nazis' crimes against the world. Uh, we talked with Lawrence just about Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trials. Well, Nuremberg, uh, Nuremberg was basically the first international criminal court in human history. And uh, the, um, the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal consisted of judges and prosecutors from the United States, from Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. And on trial were these major Nazi war criminals, um, basically kind of obviously not, not Hitler or uh, Himmler. They had committed suicide. But uh, again, very important functionaries of the Nazi state were on trial at Nuremberg. Uh, Nuremberg was not in the first instance really a Holocaust trial. Uh, the main crimes that were being tried at Nuremberg were um, the Nazis' aggressive war, the fact that they had kind of uh, catapulted uh, Europe into this devastating war, and also the war crimes that they had perpetrated in uh, prosecuting that war. Nuremberg, Germany, once the shrine city of the Nazis, ravaged by the war Hitler launched on the world, ironically the scene of the final chapter of his partners in conquest. American units were on security guard outside the Palace of Justice during history's most momentous trial. The justices delivered their judgments. Hess received a sentence of life imprisonment. Ribbentrop and Keitel sentenced to death by hanging. Thus it went. Twelve defendants to die, seven given prison terms, and three acquitted. Sentenced to die, Goering was later to beat the hangman by taking his own life. Sharply in contrast with Nazi justice, the defendants received a fair trial for their war crimes. There was another very important Nazi war crime trial uh, in the early 1960s held in Israel. The trial of Adolf Eichmann, basically the architect of the final solution of the Holocaust. You know, He ran the logistics of these mass deportations of Jewish, uh, European Jews that led to the slaughter and murder of six million. One of the worst criminals in, in the Nazi regime uh, and how they found him in Argentina. Such a great story, Mossad capturing him in 1960 and bringing him back for trial. Uh, and he is found guilty. You know, Demyanyuk's trial, as he's now brought to Israel, to Jerusalem to be tried, is really the second big Nazi war crime trial. It had been 25 years since the Eichmann trial. We asked uh, Lawrence Douglas about the Eichmann trial uh, how that was kind of the trial of the century and its differences from the Demyanyuk trial in, in 1986-1987. The Eichmann trial uh, takes place in 1961 in, um, in Jerusalem. And Eichmann is, he's not exactly what I would call a uh, principal architect of the Holocaust, but he is what we might say the kind of logistical mastermind of the Holocaust. He was the one who basically arranged all the deportations and that really was a Holocaust trial. Uh, the crimes that were committed against the European Jews was really the front and center of uh, that case. The Mianya case, of course, is a little bit different because um, he was really kind of what we might say at the bottom of the whole exterminatory apparatus. You know, he's a, whatever else we might say about him, uh, he definitely was kind of a, a small fish. <laughs> The story that had a grim preface in the horror of Nazi concentration camps comes to an equally grim end in Israel, as Adolf Achmann is sentenced for his crimes against humanity. Defense attorney Robert Savacious will automatically appeal, but this is the end for Eichmann, who was seized in Buenos Aires in 1960 and spirited to Israel. The three judges started to study the evidence when the four-month trial ended in August and found Eichmann guilty on 15 counts of the indictment. In his bulletproof booth, 
Eichmann sits stoically as the charges are summed up. The unseen witnesses against this former Gestapo colonel are the six million Jews he is convicted of slaughtering. The judges then call on the defendant to stand as they pass their sentence. The end of a trail of blood and horror. The end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. The man who escaped the Nuremberg war trials by fleeing to South America receives justice at the hands of the people whom he had aimed to wipe out. John Demjanjuk has brought the trial in Jerusalem. And it is a every day the biggest story on the papers. It's on TV in, Jer- in Jerusalem and Israel every single day. Uh, the crowd, you know, there's constant disruptions. They're booing, jeering him as he walks in, people yelling out murderer. It's got this trial of the century feel. You know, Demjanjuk thought, well, okay, this is, I've been deported, but this will be simple. You know, I'm not going to be found to be Ivan the Terrible, um, and that'll be it. But the prosecution begins running testimony from these people, these prisoners, these survivors from Treblinka, and it's damning testimony. It's emotional. They talk about their experience. They talk about Demjanjuk and some of the things that he did and that he was Ivan the Terrible. Yeah, I mean, it really does have a, the, a quality of a spectacle. It is, uh, this is the only, the second um, kind of Holocaust trial ever to take place in Israeli history, the Eichmann trial being the first. So this is now about a quarter of a century later. Uh, it's being broadcast live on television. And uh, it really does have this kind of, uh, you know, this, uh, this quality of being kind of a, a, a spectacle. Um, and we should bear in mind that he's being tried as this particularly notorious death camp guard of, at Treblinka, right? As this Ivan Grozny of Treblinka, that is what he's being, uh, tried as. So much of the Netflix series, The Devil Next Door is about this Israeli trial in the mid to late eighties. And so much good video and, and you see the testimony. Uh, of the survivors, so they're IDing him. They're giving their stories. You know, they're saying that this Ivan the Terrible, he would bash people with a pipe. You know, he stands at the gas chamber, forcing people in. He carries a sword. He stabs people. He tortures them in their final moments. These people are finally confronting this guy that they've seen in their dreams and their nightmares. You know, they tell a story about how he stabbed a pregnant woman in the stomach right before he put her in the in the gas chamber. You know, he stabs people in the eyes. He cuts off ears. He, he cuts off women's breasts. I mean, these testimonies, and you can see more of them in the documentary. I mean, they'll bring you to tears. It's just awful. But there's especially, uh, you know, a very famous uh, testimony by uh, Elihu Rosenberg. And Rosenberg's, uh, you know, he stands, he stands there and tells his story, emotional story. Uh, we talk with with Lawrence Douglas about Rosenberg's eyewitness testimony. And uh, I believe 10 uh, Treblinka survivors had identified Demyanyuk as this Ivan the Terrible. Of those 10, uh, six actually testified at the trial. One of them was this Eliyahu Rosenberg, who very famously uh, approaches Demyanyuk uh, in order to look him in the eyes. And he actually asked the judge, you know, would you please direct the defendant to remove his glasses so I can look into his eyes? And he looks into Demyanyuk's eyes and he goes, Oh, those murderous eyes, I'll never forget them. And it's this really very dramatic uh, moment in the trial. It becomes this kind of galvanic moment, photographs of Eliyahu Rosenberg staring 
you know, standing directly in front of Demyanyuk and uttering those words, those murderous eyes, you know, the kind of that photograph becomes this, probably the most iconic image associated with the trial. And uh, that kind of eyewitness testimony is very, very powerful. Um, unfortunately, the eyewitnesses all had it wrong. Holocaust survivor Eliyahu Rosenberg testified in court that John Demyanyuk was, in fact, Treblinka death camp guard Ivan the Terrible. However, last week, defense attorneys discovered this 1945 statement in which they say Rosenberg claims he saw another prisoner kill the guard Ivan the Terrible during a prison uprising. Demyanyuk's son-in-law, Ed Nishnik, showed me a copy of the statement, which he claims was written by Rosenberg two years after the prison uprising. Rosenberg allegedly says he saw fellow inmate Gustav give Ivan a hit on the head with a spade so that he stayed lying there forever. And this testimony is explosive. You know, while he's giving it, he goes up and confronts uh, Demyanyuk. Uh, you know, Rosenberg's wife faints in the crowd. The, you know, the gallery goes wild. Uh, Demyanyuk extends his hand for him to shake his hand. He's refused. Following Rosenberg, uh, Demyanyuk's defense begins. You know, Rosenberg said in a statement uh, after the war that he saw Ivan the Terrible killed during an uprising at Treblinka in 1943. You know, how can John Demyanyuk be Ivan the Terrible if you said you, the prisoners rose up and killed him? Uh, they ask him about that and, you know, and talk about it in the documentary as well. But 1987, he says, you know, I didn't actually see him. I was hopeful that he had been killed. And Demyanyuk lashes out and calls Rosenberg a liar. It's just ugly stuff. John decides to testify for himself. You know, it's The trial's not going well. Um, and his testimony doesn't go that great either. He sticks to his story that he was never there, that he was a POW. All these eyewitnesses are wrong. Uh, he was never you know, in Treblinka. He was never a guard of any kind. And he was a POW in Poland for the duration of the war. He testifies for himself. We talked to Lawrence about it. And it really does not help. He does not uh, acquit himself well on the stand. <laughs> and um, and as you as you rightly point out, um, any lawyer worth his salt typically tells their their uh, client, don't testify. And you particularly don't want to have a client testify if that client has already a long paper trail of giving statements. And those statements are contradictory. And by the time Demyanyuk takes the stand in Jerusalem, he has this very long paper trail because he's been interviewed during these various uh, denaturalization proceedings in the United States. And so he does not acquit himself well. I mean, to the point that the presiding Israeli judge actually interrupts his testimony and says, you know, like, Mr. Demyanyuk, do you understand what an alibi is? An alibi is supposed to help you. And uh, so, no, he, uh, he doesn't really do a great job on the stand. One piece of evidence that's really damning for Demyanyuk is what's called his Trudniki card. It's like a Nazi membership card to the SS. In Trudniki, this camp where Ukrainians are picked to be guards. They're trained, uh, and they basically become SS, you know, SS guards. The ID card, you know, they said it was a forgery, that the Russians, the Soviet, the KGB had forged this card, and they'd done it uh, to frame him as a, you know, a Ukrainian-American. And he was experts on both sides that are saying, on the prosecution side, saying that this card is not a forgery. Here's why. Uh, they talk a lot about this in, in his book and also in the documentary. But this Triniki card hangs over John Demyanyuk. Why would there be an ID card 
of you being a you know a, an SS guard if you were never there. You also raised this issue about this uh, so-called Triniki uh, identification card. Now, Triniki was the name of the camp that the SS sent these Ukrainian former POWs to to train to become auxiliaries for the SS. And a very important piece of evidence against evidence against Demyanyuk was his uh, Triniki identification card. And at the time of the trial, a lot of people, the defense tried to suggest that the Triniki identification card was a forgery. That card has now been one of the most exhaustively uh, examined documents in legal history. And there is no doubt that it is um, authentic. In April 1988, the case goes to the three judges and it's set for a verdict. Everyone's on pins and needles in Cleveland, in Jerusalem, and around the world. Uh, we play for you a, a report you know, where you actually hear from the judges being translated, obviously, from the, from the Hebrew. But we'll play for you, uh, you know, a clip of the verdict of the state of Israel versus John Demyanyuk. We therefore find that the excuse is Ivan the Terrible and uh, that in his deeds he did as uh, uh, Ivan and we therefore find him guilty as charged. It had been a dramatic day in every sense. On the final morning of his trial, the 62-year-old former American car worker had to be dragged to a nearby cell. He had refused to leave the police van that brought him to court, complaining of excruciating back pain. His family, who had expected a guilty verdict, said their father had had an attack of nerves. Still protesting his innocence, Demyanyuk was led away, convicted of sending 900,000 Jews to their deaths in the vicious Treblinka concentration camp in Poland during the Second World War. Now the possibility of execution hangs over him. His son called the trial's verdict an injustice. We are going to appeal to the Supreme Court, and we will have new evidence of the new eyewitnesses. We have Treblinka survivors residing in the United States that know John Demiuk is not having a terrible. We hope to bring them in, and uh, all we can do is pray that the, the judges in the Supreme Court will have the courage that these three judges lacked to make a decision based on fact, based on law, and away from the emotion that surrounds this case here in the state of Israel. Guilty. Former American citizen. Seven Hills, Ohio native John Demyanyuk is found guilty of crimes against the Jewish people, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, and he's sentenced to death by hanging. People in the crowd go crazy. You've got to watch this moment uh, in, in the documentary. I want to say it's episode four or five. Lawrence's book focuses on this trial, but that's it. And his attorneys say they will appeal, but John Demyanyuk is now facing the hanging. Mary does a great job of showing the devil next door, of showing just how incensed the, you know things were, the tenor of the court, the trial, the the national you know feeling about Demyanyuk. Everyone thought he was guilty. If you were an Israeli, you were certain of his guilt. Many in America were were maybe questioning it, but in Israel, it was a no-brainer. His Jewish attorney you know becomes the focal point of this national anger. Uh, he's a huge part of the documentary on Sheftel. Uh, but we asked Lawrence about the story where Sheftel, following the trial, during the appeal, gets acid thrown in his face by a Treblinka survivor. But yes, I mean, what happened, and again, this is one of the 
kind of grotesque little um, uh, details of that whole trial was um, one of the members of the defense team, a former judge, actually commits suicide. He throws himself off a building. At his funeral, the lead Israeli defense lawyer from Dimyanyuk gets acid thrown in his face by a Treblinka survivor. And he ends up having, uh, he ends up uh, suffering damage to, ends up being to Demyanyuk's great advantage that that appellate process was uh, delayed. Demyanyuk did not lose all his American support, his Ukrainian support, following his conviction. And we have an appearance by one of our uh, favorite subjects, uh, Jim Trafficant, the congressman of Crimetown from Youngstown, Ohio. Um, he becomes a backer of Demyanyuk. Obviously, we were just recently on one of our favorite shows, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Uh, you can go find that Bruce Carlson's episode, Great Pod, uh, that we did about trafficking uh, just last week, uh, two weeks ago. I, I implore you to go listen to that. I'm the guest on that. It's just a real honor to be on, on a show that I really look up to. One of the reasons I do this podcast is because of Bruce's show. But we talk about trafficking, and we'll play a clip from, you know, from Jim. Uh, he became close to Demyanyuk. And trafficking, you know, he'd go back and, and listen, you know, but he had a special hatred for the Justice Department. They claimed that he, they persecuted him. Uh, he beat them in that, in that trial we talk about. You can go listen to our episode two from season three, uh, James Trafficking versus the World. Uh, but he becomes a supporter of John Demyanyuk. We talked to Lawrence about it, and you'll hear from Trafficking himself uh, as he gets involved in the appeal process and trying to prove that Demyanyuk was innocent. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Trafficant, as you well know, is kind of an unusual character, kind of a uh, flamboyant and ultimately, I suppose, we could say pretty corrupt um, politician. And, uh, you know, probably one of the things he was trying to do is he does have a substantial Ukrainian population um, that he's representing. And, um, you know, for better or worse, the Ukrainians really did rally around uh, Demyanyuk. And he's also supported by people like uh, Pat Buchanan, who... Uh, as we recall, uh, you know, ran for the president of the United States and had been uh, um, uh, Reagan's uh, press secretary. Um, but uh, he's also supported, for example, when he is tried in Israel, um, his defense is uh, paid for uh, by a guy named uh, Jerome Brentar, who is a, um, uh, a travel agent who also has very close connections with Holocaust denial circles. Um, so there are kind of this sort of unsavory uh, undercurrent of anti-Semitism and also of um, Holocaust denial that is um, supporting Demyanyuk's uh, defense work. Though I should add, Demyanyuk himself never engaged in you know, any Holocaust denial. John Demyanyuk, did he get a railroad? Uh, was he railroaded? I don't know if he did, but when his family came to me and they said they broke no laws and they went to 535 offices in the Capitol and no one would talk to them, I thought it was strange. I looked at their case and I found out that Otto Horn, a former Nazi guard, was lying in Cleveland and I presented it to the courts. The Israeli Supreme Court last month showed quality. They accepted those two documents as official evidence and that trial now is still on hold. We want to know who Ivan the Terrible really is. If it's John Demyanyuk, put him to death. But if it's not, let's find out who Ivan really is. 
Demyanyuk is still appealing his case that he's not Ivan the Terrible. He's facing death in Israel. Um, and there's new evidence. And this new evidence seems to show that Demyanyuk maybe wasn't Ivan the Terrible. And the American prosecutors who, who began this case are also exposed as maybe not being completely forthcoming with information uh, about Demyanyuk that he wasn't at Treblinka. Uh, that they really, the Americans, uh, you know, the Office of Special Investigations, the OSI, maybe never even thought he ever was there. This is, again, where things are both kind of uh, complicated and fascinating. So um, you remember these death camps like uh, Sobobor, Treblinka, they were all in the east. Um, you know, camps like Dachau, Buchenwald, they were in the west. They were liberated by the Americans. These other camps, uh, like Auschwitz, was liberated by the Soviets. So a lot of these documents about the pure death camps, they all were seized by the Soviets. And the Soviets during the Cold War were not particularly willing to share this material uh, with the West. Um, so when the Soviet Union starts unraveling, suddenly all these documents that are kind of moldering in KGB files become available. And what these documents show is they show the Israelis got the wrong guy. They show that uh, Ivan the Terrible was a completely different Ukrainian, also named Ivan, clearly enough. And uh, but. His Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.